So therefore, be proud to be a decent American rather than be just a wanker whipping up fear. Because you're supposed to tackle people, you're supposed to hit people at pace and hit them hard as part of the game. It's not chess we're playing. I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. The double tap does what the f he wants. Hello everybody and welcome along to chapter 75 of What's the Story podcast. My name is Danny Murray and to my left is Rocco, Graham, Merrow, Merrigan. To my left, do you not get it because uh, everyone's to my left on this podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Graham, Merrow, Merrigan, how are you sir? Good, how are you? Fantastic man, in great form. Yeah. You must be delighted. Why? You got to go off into the sunset with Sally. Yeah, did. Went back. Got my woman. Yeah, reclaimed her. Reclaimed so to speak. her. That's probably the wrong thing to say about a woman. You don't claim a woman, do you? No. It's I, not a I came, I saw, I conquered. Left Carrickstown. Right then. Forgot to um, tell you that wrong. <laughs> Graham uh, does a tad bit of acting on the side. And he's uh, he's featured in Fair City about a year ago. And then they brought him back to effectively steal Dan, Steve Gunn, friend of the show. Well, now, Dan stole my woman. And now you went back and stole her back? And I got just... Two wrongs to not make a right crime. They deal with Carrickstown. Up to Carrickstown, resolute. You'll be able <laughs> to get it on the uh, the RTE player, lads, if you haven't already checked it out. Nonetheless, Graham, Merrill, Merrigan, as always, I'm Danny Murray. This is What's the Story Podcast, at WTS Pod on Twitter. And our guest this week, also to the left of me, <laughs> <laughs> Ronan Bortenshaw. How are you, sir? I'm very good, thank you. <laughs> Um, I'm looking forward to this. It should be a bit of crack because um, Ronan is a journalist, broadcaster, political mastermind, doll researcher, and um, he's given us two a couple of copy each of uh, Jacobin magazine, which um, is it's a 1916 special. That was it. Yeah, we had an issue out earlier uh, this year. What I did is I was started working with them towards the end of last year, and it's American-based magazine. A lot of them are from New York. And Bascar, who's the editor, grew up in a part of New York where uh, there were quite a lot of, it was very Irish-American, a lot of kind of Irish murals. Uh, some of his earliest kind of politics stuff was seen, uh, kind of IRA, PLO murals on the walls of uh, places, Irish-American places in New York. So he always, even though he was West Indian background, he always had this interest in Ireland. So when, when uh, I started working with them last year and they saw the 1916 anniversary was coming up, they said, let's do an issue. So Jacobin's been gone since 2010 but this is the first proper international one we did it was one for ireland so oh, well um, happy days we got in there first before before the rest yeah <laughs> yeah i had a flick, quick flick through it there before we started recording looks good there's definitely a couple of in it a couple of bits in it that i'm 100 percent gonna read um, will you agree i don't know if we'll agree now, Graham. come on i mean there's good stuff about trump in there i presume is there well the, the, we have another one that's just out now post the election so um there's there's a particular uh, issue looking at the the united states what's happened in the election and where it's going from the perspective that jacobin took throughout it which was uh, it was one of the few magazines in america that was on the side of bernie sanders um right. to through the campaign so a lot of it is criticizing what went wrong with the Clinton campaign, uh, how they managed to, to turn this, what should have been a, an enormous 
victory into a into a defeat and then also looking at what what is the politics of of donald trump because there's kind of a lot of confusion about what what trump represents uh, how dangerous for his administration can be um whether or not he is a, a kind of outsider figure or is it just going to be another presidency like a george w bush presidency um and then the other one which always is a question for left-wingers who should be looking at it which is how does this fellow who's a you know so-called billionaire uh real estate tycoon end up appealing to uh, working class voters in ohio and pennsylvania and michigan who voted for decades for the democrats who voted for bernie sanders in the primaries and so on how did he end up winning because it was the midwest it was that part of america really the rust belt that uh, that won it for him so um yeah that, that's our latest issue now is looking at that whole question uh America after the election, Trump's America from a left wing perspective. So it should it be interesting. Written from a from a basement. You, you, you were, yeah. <laughs> now, hang you, on, right before we launch into Trump and everything else, right, Graham, we're coming from the fabulous and famous Patrick Castle Hotel. It's patrickcastle.com. Yep, Cloney in the beautiful metropolis of South Cloney. Lovely. It's great. It is. Love it. That's all we need to say, is it? Pretty much other than it's coming up to Christmas, lads. So Adam, Adam told us last week. Yeah, yeah, he did. He, he basically slated the plug that I put in. So <laughs> He took um, you down. Yeah, less is more, I think, is what he was saying. <laughs> That's what he said. Less is more. Um, but yeah, look, don't forget, check out the website. Check out Christmas uh, Dunge- offers and Dunge- stuff Dunge- like Grill, that. Yeah, pop up. The Christmas decorations are up. The lights are up and all that sort of stuff. So pop up, have a look. It's beautiful. Enjoy your time up here. Bring a loved one. Share it. That time of year, lads. December. It's officially you're allowed. It's. I know your ad came on, and he was on an ad for Tesco. <laughs> did you know that? No, I am. I'm discovering his entire acting career now. Yeah. In the last five minutes, I'm not an actor. <laughs> I just get asked to do these things. He was texting me the other day, and he was like, "You can call me Affleck from now on." <laughs> <laughs> notions, notions. So, what are you up to? He's like, "Oh, swimming lessons." I heard they're remaking Jaws. I'm gonna be the shark. <laughs> notions. Mental actor, though. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> I could get into it. Yeah, com. <laughs> check it out. So, uh, housekeeping, we normally kind of do a couple of random bits, but I suppose some of housekeeping this week is going to be what we're going to talk about yeah. in general. But before we do that, I suppose, um, we've already slagged you for being on the telly, so I don't need to do that again. <laughs> but what I haven't slagged you about is, uh, is do you know... What's You're blindsiding me here. I am a little bit. Does name Emma Morano mean that to you? Emma Morano. Emma Morano. Yeah. I just no. thought of my, she's the world's oldest woman. I thought you might have matched her on Tinder lately. <laughs> <laughs> she turned a ripe old age of 117 during the week. No way. Where's she from? Italy. Um, 117, man. November. What did, what, what did she put it down to, old age? Uh, eating two boiled eggs and staying single. Two boiled eggs a day and staying single. Are you she, missing? No, I swear to God. Um... She was born November 29th or November 30th, I think it might have been, actually, uh, in 1899. She's the last person alive that's known from the 1800s. And um, she was married, but she left her husband, who was abusive, in 1939. Oh, my God. And has stayed single ever since. Before World War Two, she left her husband and stayed single ever since. And has she got kids? Uh, now she only had one son who died in infancy. Oh, so it's been a solitary life for her. But, but a uh, long one. 
A long one. That yeah. bodes well for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I just, I just thought that that's the kind of thing that I think is worth noting, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, somebody lived to 117. Now, granted, she... Uh, but they not say that it's, there's it's the olive oil. I, that's what it is. It's the olive oil in Italy. In Mediterranean. The Mediterranean. Yeah. Mediterranean. Is there not older um, people in China and Asia and all? Not... No, I don't think so. Well, she's got the Guinness record. There may have been, and they may have died. She's the oldest yeah. person alive. Well, I'm not saying she's the oldest person ever to have lived. I think no, that no, might have been. The oldest, I thought there was a, a man in Tibet. Right. That was older. But I could I, be just making that up. I, I, I think I, there are different Dalai Lamas. Don't yeah. Sorry? There are different Dalai Lamas. They die, and it's not been the same Dalai Lama. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. See? So... <laughs> Do you put in your place? It was before. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that, I just, uh, when I was reading it during the week, I was like, whoa, hang on a second, 117. So what is she seeing in her life? She's seeing everything, literally. Two world wars, the Cold War, Italy winning several World Cups. She's seeing the Silvio rise. Berlusconi. The, I was going to say the rise and fall of Silvio, the <laughs> mad thing. She has bunga lived. The bunga parties. The bunga bunga parties. Do you ever see the, it's a, uh, not a vine, but like a short a gif or whatever you call them. And um, he's walking out of government buildings. And the car is pulled up at the side of the road. And there's a woman about to get into the car. And he just walks up behind her and starts like trusting his hips and laughing. That is going. Yeah, yeah I did then, see that. Yeah. And he walks around to the other and gets in the car. He's a mad thing. Um, but yeah, she's living He's corrupt as you know what. Well, yeah. I mean. Completely. Isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Berlusconi is interesting. We'll come on to that later. But if you wanted an example of like what a Trump uh, administration might look like, you couldn't that's pick outrageous. a better one. Than that's, ba- out, that's outrageous. I'm not having that. Berlusconi. But yeah, so there you go. I did see that gift years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, I mean, 117, right? And the thing is, she's she's blind now, mostly deaf, doesn't enjoy visitors. Um, but obviously now has a full-time carer. I'm just kind of thinking, like, is it? Would you like to have that? I, I don't think I would. Look, I she's mean, she's no she, family around her, really, is she? No, no. She had, I think, uh, two or three younger siblings who were all dead as well. So, like, literally nothing. Like, she's kind of like a mini celebrity in our little village. And mm. um, but I don't know, man. I don't think I'd like to get so far in life that I've no dependency and I can't see and I can't hear them. Just to have a Guinness World Record. But do you think she just wanted to live that long? She said, she, she, I'm hanging on for this. It's about time these Guinness <laughs> feckers came to me. <laughs> Sitting here eating nothing but eggs all the time. I'm sick of it. <laughs> Can't believe she puts it down. To, are you messing? No, I swear. Google it. They always put it down to... Mad stuff. A, a glass of red wine or something. Yeah, a glass of red Especially wine Especially for Nikki, I thought she was going to say that. Nope, two, two eggs a day, every day. Um, and lots of naps. <laughs> I agree with the lots of naps. Yeah, lots of that. naps. But, um, yeah, so that's that. Um, old woman in Italy. We salute you, Emma Morano. Competition winner, Graham. Do it at the end. Ah, do it now. Get it done over. No, have them waiting. Fair enough. The winner of the competition will have to wait until the end. Yes. <laughs> Are we going to bother talking about Conor McGregor or not? No. No, everything's being talked about. There's too about much to talk about with Ronald. We can Fair talk enough. about it later. Uh, Fair uh, enough. In the later episode. Okay, well then, I suppose we, we've mentioned Trump, so I guess as we see the rise of the right, it's only fitting that we talk about the demise of the man who probably epitomised the left. R.I.P. Beardy Fidel. Fidel Castro, yeah. What was the... what? The reaction has been quite 
it's been quite mixed, hasn't it? Yeah. Like, where would I seen a reaction? I seen a, a, a professor on the BBC during the week. I think it was Sunday morning, uh, last Sunday morning, and um, the BBC were kind of. They seemed the presenter seemed quite shocked. This woman was a, a professor of the University of Southampton as an expert of Cuba, and everything the the presenter was trying to pin on Fidel Castro, um, she countered the host and said, "Well, no, I've spent a lot of years in in Cuba, um, that didn't happen. I spent a lot of time with the locals." Um, she was talking about there was a specific question as well about incarceration if you speak out against Fidel. And she said the worst case scenario she came across in her uh, residence uh, was uh, a Cuban man in his 60s, 70s who likes to take a drink. And in the evenings he would shout, down with Fidel, down with Fidel. The local police would take him, put him in a cell over the night, and then he'd be released the next day. Like Here's, it, here's what I would say on, on all that, right? I think you have to concede and be serious that there was political repression in Cuba and that there still is. Uh, freedom of speech, the ability to organise, trade union rights, there's lots of these things that are under under threat. Now, it's not something... This is sometimes, you know, the side of this is people put it out there as if Cuba is the exception on this. You know, there are still Black Panthers many decades on in prison in the United States and there's uh, Chelsea Manning in prison in the United States and there's uh, people who are involved in the environmentalist movement in, in, in jail over there too. Cuba is by no means the only country in the world that uh, puts people who are you know, in prison for political reasons. Um, but it is uh, a place where I would certainly not be happy with the level of political expression and so on people have but it's a, that's a condition you've got to try and see within its full context so i mean here what you've got ever since michael d made his uh, comments right in his statement where he talked about the role fidel castro played in the world there's been this huge kind of uh, backlash against him particularly from the from the right in ireland and some of it as i just said there has a basis but a lot of it misses an awful lot and what it misses is the reality of a country that has had, you know, more than 600 uh, assassination attempts on its leader throughout the period that he was alive. That in the 1960s, the head of the CIA was saying uh, the Cuban people uh, really support the Castro uh, government. Our only ability to defeat them will be if we starve the country, if we introduce starvation. And um, this was, by the way, a view that was maintained if you look at the documents and the records by the CIA all the way up through. It's why the blockade was introduced. It was, it's not a, Cuba really was a country ever since the blockade was brought in that was on a war footing. So its comparison with uh, the West and, and those terms um, doesn't make a whole lot of, a whole lot of sense. And then the other side, of which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, is the part of the world that it's in. Uh, so people talk a lot about Cuba and pull it, wrench it from its context and don't compare it, say, for instance, to Haiti. I mean, this, these are the, the kind of places uh, that are neighboring Cuba and that a few generations ago had similar living standards. Now, today, Cuba has uh, world-class uh, medical system, universal access to food and housing, uh, decent quality of uh, water and sanitation, um, access to the work for for its people Haiti is sitting there in a situation where there's an epidemic of HIV the country is effectively falling apart there's uh, starvation uh, I mean and th this is only a few miles uh, yeah. across in the, in the Caribbean from, from Cuba so the question of what they managed to achieve uh, 
in Cuba was left out of that. And the debate around what freedom is then becomes a really interesting one. Because like I say, I don't think Cuba is free. Uh, I don't think that a society that doesn't have a fullness of political expression and the ability to organize uh, yourself, particularly around you know the trade union rights and so on as well, the freedom of movement, I don't think we can consider that totally free. But at the same time, the freedom is very often in the West posed only in a very narrow way, you know, like it's a freedom of expression. It's a post-material freedom, right? Mm. The, the kind of freedom that matters most to people when their basic necessities of life are dealt with. But in, in Ireland at the moment, we're look, coming up to a Christmas now, we're going to have 2,500 children, right, who are homeless over the Christmas and thousands of families who are in that situation. Now, what kind of freedom to, is it for them to have the right for full political expression if at the same time they don't have a place to live in? Or in the United States, you know, 90 miles across the bay there from, from Cuba, you've got tens of millions of people without access to basic health care. Uh, now, they absolutely have a right to political organisation in a system which is absolutely dominated by corporate money and all the rest, but they do have a right to it. But in what sense are they really free if they're living their entire lives in fear of ever getting sick? So it's the perception of freedom well, that's I think getting that, kind of cut up and wound up. And uh, for me, this whole perception of freedom and this whole talk on freedom, I mean, there's a hundred and something sovereign states in the world. The vast majority of them have freedom in one shape or form. Like, I'm, there, I, there's, yeah, look, there's different types of freedom. There's different levels of freedom. And kind of as you were saying, like, it's, it's almost like freedom after the fact for a lot of these cases. Like, the, the, you, you've kind of disappointed me a bit here. I was expecting a full-on sort of you versus me and me being like, yeah, come on, they're right, but you're kind of being balanced. What's that about, man? I don't like it. I tell you, for this reason, um, socialism, if it's going to work in the 21st century, it's got to learn from some of the limitations of the 20th. Uh, and that uh, those of us on the left who take that sort of stuff, the project of building it now, seriously have to um, recognise that. I want to be very in one sense, uh, defensive of Cuba because I think that there are so many things that it has done. I mean, we can't underestimate the project of building a first-class, world-class health system in a country with the level of poverty that Cuba has faced with a blockade. I mean, think about Ireland, for instance. We had the economic war against uh, Britain, remember De Valera, talking about, you know, buy everything British, but they're coal and all the rest of it. Burn everything British, but they're coal. Um, uh, We dealt with that economic war against a smaller country that we were you know a bit less integrated into than cuba was in the united states for a few years and crippled us to the point where we had to give up cuba's had a blockade from the biggest country in the world which was its biggest trading partner which is 90 miles across the border uh, and they had that for decades and they managed to survive and to have really high kind of levels of human development so there's a lot to be salvaged from it but was a large proportion of that survival not down to the fact that they had the Soviet Union helping them out while the Soviet Union had money, though? Part of it was. There's no question that the Soviet Union uh, was a kind of pillar that, that, that propped up Cuba. But the Soviet Union has been gone uh, since the early 1990s. And the reality is Cuba remains. Its doctors mm. are still gone. When we had 
another example of Haiti there, right? When the, the latest catastrophe of many befell Haiti, uh, it was thousands of Cuban doctors who were the ones that stopped the Haitian situation f- from descending into a total humanitarian disaster um, by leaving Cuba, going to Haiti, and doing often very dangerous work. Um, that they were the ones that fought e- Ebola in, in Africa. Uh, we remember as well, uh, they were the front line of the people who were trying to fight against the spread of that most recently were Cuban mm. doctors. And so the Cuban health system is still this amazing kind of uh, uh, benefit for the world, uh, even after m- many years after the Soviet Union's fallen. And we should remember, uh, by contrast, in Haiti, what was going on you know, from our side in the free world over here, well, they were sending doctors into Haiti to, to help people. We had Dennis O'Brien in there busily making huge amounts of money off the collapse of their society um, by getting you know cheap telecommunications uh, deals from the, the Haitian government in exchange for... Creating jobs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you put your spin on it, I'll put mine on it, man. Creating jobs. <laughs> I know, I know Dennis O'Brien is a major patron of this show, so I have to, I have to keep myself uh, behaved, you know. He's paying but, for Grimes' new car. <laughs> <laughs> um, I found it interesting that Castro, like, he, all, he made sure that there was one doctor for every 100 people in Cuba. That's astonishing. Yeah. That really is astonishing. Um, so where do we stand with the argument he was evil versus he, he was very good? I don't even think I, I could bring myself to say he was evil. But there was a lot of people like, I mean, Charlie Flanagan couldn't bring it to himself to have a, a I don't know, I suppose he couldn't share the same. I know he's Fine Gael, uh, President Higgins is Labour, but he couldn't bring it to himself to have what the, same, a, sentiment the that, same sentiment yeah. that President Higgins has had, but Charlie Flanagan was able to put the flag at half mass for King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia. Who Charlie, Charlie Flanagan has written a whole lot of pieces for giving the role his own father, Oliver Flanagan, played yeah. in Irish history, who was a notorious anti Semite, someone who was soft on the, the, the Nazis and made horrendous comments in the Irish uh, in the Irish Parliament about Jewish people in Ireland so I mean yeah. Charlie Charlie Flanagan has all kinds of very interesting sympathies yeah but he's a man that's that's holding a ministerial role at the moment and I mean if he's the the, the hypocrisy in lowering a flag at half mass for a Saudi king whose Saudi Arabia's human rights records are completely oh yeah well the Washington Post defensive. was another Washington Post was a great one there I mean the editorial they ran I think was a uh, was they called Abdullah uh, a reformer uh, when he died? You know this yeah. this guy yeah. presided over this Saudi prison, which is a prison state. You know, um, and doesn't have, by contrast to the limitations of freedom we were talking about in Cuba, uh, Saudi Arabia has far more limitations than those, and none of the socially beneficial things. And none mm. of the other the other thing is, like, look at the roles in the world. You know, Saudi Arabia, of course, sponsoring um, some of the the nastier of the uh, Wahhabi uh, groups in that part of the world, and some of the most dangerous uh, of the, the, the terrorist organizations, including, by proxy, ISIS. And Cuba was one of the very few places in the world that really contributed to the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. Yeah. Um, when the apartheid regime in South Africa invaded Angola as an attempt to crush regional opposition to its uh, apartheid policies. Cuba sent troops to Angola and mm. fought them back and defeated the South African apartheid regime. It's the same time as the American and British governments were not only funding but giving full political support to apartheid in, in South Africa. 
so its role in the world is really radically different and one of the other things i think that you know i, I saw leo Faradka challenged on this uh, uh on the vincent brown show yesterday um was it yesterday or the day before? It was some some day recently, uh, and he was asked about you know you're willing to condemn human rights abuses in, in Cuba, but you're not willing to condemn them in, from the United States. And he was pushed on you know the Shannon and so forth. Guantanamo Bay. Yeah, well, of course. What's the biggest human rights abuse in the whole island of Cuba? Is that there's a there's it's a, in America. Yeah, there's yeah. a torture camp there that's holding you know all these people without trial, and that we know has been torturing people and has done it for years. Uh, but the American record in Cuba it goes back a long ways. I mean, it's really, really nasty. There's all these incidents that people don't know about because they really haven't been brought up in the in the Western press. There's Cuban flight, is it 445 or 455? I can't remember, in 1976, where there was a CIA agent um, who was involved in, uh, in bombing an airliner that killed 73 people. Um, and this was just one of a whole incident of terrorist attacks um, against Cuba uh, that included bombing hotels, uh, bombing department stores, poisoning uh, crops, and you know, with cancerous drugs, um, really, really nasty stuff that was going on over this war for for, for many decades. Um, and once you begin to look at the reality of, for instance, the American role in the world, um, and you see you unpack some of what it did in the twentieth century, it becomes a lot harder to make the the cases about human rights um, with a, with a straight face. Uh, my approach, my approach to that is to say, well, let's hold to the same standards and say, you know, we're not going to use American abuses to justify what was yeah. deeply imperfect yeah. in Cuba. But at the same time, let's not pretend as if the so-called free world is sitting here on a pedestal uh, with a right to lecture everyone while it's running a torture camp in the country that it's given out about. <laughs> yeah, you know exactly. What I mean? So when like when people are saying, um, "Oh yeah, he he was he was grand. Castro was grand." But his human rights record. What when they say that his human rights record was uh, was awful? What what are they referring to then? Well, I think they are referring to the. Is fact it just that a one party state thing that they're talking about? It's a one party about? state. There are limitations to the ability to express yourself um, in in Cuba. Not not complete. I mean, there is political opposition in Cuba. Um, there's those uh, the the. Uh, wives, the white wives, and kids who march almost every day. Um, there are opposition demonstrations and so forth. But there is a limitation to the ability, for instance, to be setting up, you know, newspapers to put out an alternative line. Uh, there's uh, limitations to political organisations setting up political parties or groups. Um, I, no, they are right that there are those things. Um, there's no question about it. Uh, but. Uh, by contrast um, to human rights abuses going on uh, that we were just talked about mm. there, um, or even the, the enormous human rights abuse, let's be honest, that goes on in every war. I mean, Cuba is sitting there. Um, there's a country around the same size as Ireland. When it is engaged in international affairs, it has tended to be things like what it did in support of the people of South Africa and Angola, whereas the United States probably has killed as many as a million people in the Middle East since the beginning of the Iraq War. Um, and so human rights abuses definitely are happening in the world, but this idea that it's all happening from America's opponents and none of it from the United States is a bit hard to, to stomach. Yeah, there, there's two sides to every biscuit, um, I suppose, when you look at it, but just on a couple of the things there, and I'm not going to pretend I'm, I'm off air, I, I know about these things, perhaps you would know more than I would about it, but I, I read um, one of the things that he was being criticised about was treatment of homosexuals. Now, I don't know, 
I thought gay marriage was legal in Cuba. I could be it was. It is since 1979. Well, what happened in, what I, in... There's a couple of things going on there. I think there's a legitimate criticism. Um, so, so much so that the Castro, um, in his writings in recent years, came out and said it was a great shame and what, what had happened early. Effectively, what happened was that there was, um, in the period after the, the revolution... The 60s, mm, wasn't it? Mm, mm-hmm. um, there, there were... Um, uh, Effectively, the kind of revolutionary society resulted in, as as a lot of them do, um, repression of political opponents. And some of that came through a very machismo society to produce um, repression uh, of gay people. And there's no question about that. And the historical record of it is clear. Um, But it was happening at a time in Cuba where there was... The, the kind of enormous international pressure to do on them and the attempt the Castro regime was making to defend the gains of their revolution. So in later years, he came out and, and apologized for that. But I think it is a stain uh, mm-hmm. on any kind of left-wing project that that happened. One thing I would say, though, again, when we're laying these things up from Ireland, um, Cuba legalized uh, homosexuality in 79. We hadn't done it till 93. They introduced non-discrimination legislation around gay people 10 years before we did. There's no Cuban teacher who's losing their position because of their sexual orientation, something yeah. we can't say here. And um, for, the, for the trans community in Cuba, there's free gender reassignment uh, surgery. Um, so what you end up with when you're comparing you know, Ireland to Cuba, you can definitely say what happened in that situation was totally totally wrong and that it was a major stain on the, the Cuban revolution they're, they're taking huge steps to being progressive and trying to right wrongs and sense. the idea that we can turn around uh, you know which I think a lot of people online were doing and, and from our moral pedestal over here when they were consistently the irony of it like in yeah. the 20th century uh, Cuba was consistently ahead of us on gay rights mm. so ahead of a lot of the world like <laughs> they did make a, a balls of it in the 60s but they kind of well stepped ahead just kind of skipping away from that and then skipping back towards something that, that you were saying there, Ron, about kind of some of the things that the Americans maybe had done or, or, or portrayed on Cuban soil, such as bombing department stores, hotels, the, the the attack on the plane. Is there a case to argue that America was trying to act in not only its own interests, but maybe in the interests of, I don't want to say the capitalist world, but certainly... You put into context this at the height of the Cold War. Yeah. You've got Cuban Missile Crisis, Bay of Pigs, all that sort of crack in and around this time frame that we're talking about. So you've got a situation where uh, Nikita Khrushchev has missiles in Cuba, 90 miles off the coast of America, nuclear missiles. So you've got all this sort of context to it. You've got Castro, who then got very upset about the fact that Russia and America seemed to reach an agreement for the missiles to be removed and Castro wasn't involved in that process. Is there a case to maybe say that America were kind of trying to act in their vested interest and say, well, hang on, this is a clear protagonist against us and they're looking to have nuclear weapons aiming at us at all times. Maybe we need to soften their cough a bit. Yeah, all of this happened in in the middle of the, the Cold War. But the Cold War, you see... When, when we look at the huge range of 
you know, things, terrible things that the American government did throughout the 20th century. Mm. Uh, so many of them were in defense of kind of uh, an opposition to communism. So, yeah. you know, they overthrew democratic um, governments in Chile and supported the overthrowing of um, the government of Mossadegh uh, in, in Iran, which obviously produced disastrous results there. They collaborated with the S- South African apartheid regime. They bombed the hell out of Southeast Asia and Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos. And, and so all these things were done in the name of, of anti-communism. And to some extent, you know, you can understand uh, that a lot of people who are opposed to communism might say, well, you know, we, we accept that. The problem with that is that in many cases, the Vietnamese and the Cubans were, were, were good examples of this. What you had were national liberation movements, uh, movements that were, uh, you know, of a character that wasn't necessarily in the in the first instance directly allied to the to the Soviets, which were driven into the arms of them because uh, they had uh, mutual interests in defending themselves against the Americans. Um, and the other problem with it is that you can defend an awful lot of stuff with a kind of anti-communist uh, position. Uh, in the 20th century, a lot of the history, you know, we're given, and I say this as somebody who's very critical, um, as I said earlier, of yeah. the history of the Soviet Union and all the rest of it. But a lot of the way in which the Cold War has been presented to us now, um, really, we've got to get more grown up about looking at it. If it wasn't for the existence of the Soviet Union, we wouldn't have stopped Hitler in the Second World War. Yeah. It wasn't for the existence of the Soviet Union. An awful lot of independence movements in Africa and Asia wouldn't have had any support, would probably have, have failed. Uh, Nelson Mandela was on the executive of the Communist Party of uh, South Africa. Uh, the guy who organized the march on Washington, Bayard Rustin, was in the Communist Party in, in America. And they were, uh, for a large part of the 20th century, the American Communist Party were the only people who were willing to go into the South and organize uh, black workers. And so uh, there were... You know, there is, uh, an awful lot of complexity in the history of the 20th century that's written out. Um, uh, and part of it is because you, you can justify a lot with saying the Soviet regime, particularly Stalinism, was bad. And it was, but there was a lot of complexity going on there and an awful lot of people resisting the kind of inequality and imperialism and so on that we see in the world today um, who are finding their way into the communist movements. Um, because it was willing to stand against what America was doing in the world. And, and Castro was one of those. When Castro took charge first, uh, his movement really wasn't a, a Soviet communist movement. It became one. Mm. Was it... I, I, look at it uh, I look at it sometimes in a way with America most... I saw as most recently, is it anti-kind of communism or anti-they've they've got weapons of mass destruction or is it fear we want your commodities yeah yeah well i mean a lot of a lot of the foreign policy can be looked at through that land um paranoia yeah to an extent a lot of what was done when you when you consider like the global economy and the way it's structured now uh, couldn't really work if we hadn't got a situation where the huge amount of the resources came from the global south and the huge amount of the the wealth was made in the in the west and the global north and um, we had this huge process right of imperialism and colonialism we're talking going back centuries and taking these people's countries off them and then uh, there was never a reset there was never anything where like uh, all of these western countries turned around and said okay we were wrong we apologize we're giving you back your money what they said was, okay, we're going to give you political independence, but all that gold that built 
the wealth of the country of Spain that stayed in bloody Spain. All that copper and the diamonds and the coltan and all the rest of it that built the wealth of France and <laughs> Britain and so on bloody well stayed in Britain and we still have the wealth relations in fact the the gap between the the countries in the west and and Africa Southeast Asia Latin America is greater now Uh, even except in the recent you know uh, growth of places like China and India it's greater now than it was even at that stage so there was a political freedom given but there was no kind of uh, uh, reset button pressed and returning all these people's resources that we had stolen from them Um, and that continued through the 20th century as well what would have um, we seen uh, President-elect Donald Trump's tweet about Cuba, and it was quite aggressive in the last week. Um, let's say Bernie Sanders was the president-elect. What do you think the language would be coming out of Bernie over Cuba and Castro and stuff? Oh, we can. Uh, we, he went on Democracy Now, so we can see some of what he what he would have said. Uh, I suppose there's what Bernie would say, and then there's what you know we'd read that he said in Fox News or whatever. Yeah. So he went on uh, a Democracy Now, and of course uh, he, he, the press, the American right wing press, is all now calling him a communist and saying he would he he you know, make Washington like Havana, whatever. Um, but he uh, he said uh, on Democracy Now that his view of it was Cuba had made enormous progress in human development, uh, but you know essentially was not politically free. So it's a it's a similar position to the one I would have put to you there. Yeah. Uh, Bernie Sanders' record is interesting, though. I was saying to you um, mm. earlier, uh, when he was the mayor of uh, Burlington in Vermont, which was his first major political position, uh, he was one of the very few people to speak up against American policy in Latin America, one of the very few elected officials in the States. He went to uh, Nicaragua um, to support the, the Sandinistas at that point, who had been elected but uh, had, were fighting against American Contras, so this kind of these right-wing death squads which were funded through the CIA, uh, and he went to Nicaragua to, um, to, to support them and to say that you know, the United States should change its policy in relation to, to Latin America, referring as well to Allende in Chile. And, um, one of the, that's, that's another of the interesting stories, I suppose, about Cuba when we think of it, um, what Cuba was and then what Cuba symbolised, right? Okay when we look at the history of Fidel Castro and um, there's that uh, Ewan McCall song uh, Compañeros that yeah, um, Christy Moore Christy Moore sings right? and he talks about uh, the light that was lit in that beach by uh, Fidel Castro uh, still shines all the way to Tierra del Fuego and what he means is you know that there was a long fight even to get to this point for Latin America in terms of its independence from the United States it, it, just in the last you know uh, few decades we obviously had the attempt to overthrow the governments in Chile um, Allende when things were going wrong who did he call he was uh, sitting there in his palace being attacked by Pinochet and he was on the phone to Fidel Castro one of the last people that he spoke to and in Nicaragua at the time with the Sandinistas when they were um, elected and fighting against the Contras the support was given by Fidel Castro but even up to, to more recently uh, the coup in, in Honduras to overthrew Manuel Zelaya uh, in the last number of years um, one of the few uh, people at that time that was willing to, to give that support Built, you know, when, when they tried to overthrow um, uh, Hugo Chavez in, in Venezuela and that Irish documentary, you know, the revolution will not be televised. It was an absolutely fantastic documentary. It was a fa- fascinating one. Um, and again, uh, the Cubans were, were in support of them. Same with Ecuador when they tried to overthrow uh, Correa. So you've got this weird paradox, right, that's summed up very well there. 
Cuba, a country that isn't politically free and that does have repression of people's political rights, but being criticised by an empire which just in those few years was trying to overthrow democratically elected governments in Chile, in Nicaragua, in Venezuela, in Ecuador, in Honduras. Arguably, (laughs) you could add Paraguay to it and what's just happened in in, in Brazil where um, there's this contrived process backed by the United States that's removed uh, Dilma from, from office. So... Uh, a country that is willing to flagrantly interfere in democratic elections and attempt to overthrow elected governments criticizing Cuba for uh, for its human rights um, uh, violations. So uh, an irony. Of I think the, it's gas. The last few years, I think. Um, how how much do you think things like that? The fact that, like you're pointing out, that they all turned to Fidel or whatever, and the um, some of the obituaries, I suppose, and the the, the tributes being paid them. Do you, do you think the cult of personality plays a big part in it? Yeah, it does. There's no, there's no question. I mean, we're, we're, it's an interesting one. We're losing a lot of figures in the last number of years from the 20th century who are these kind of giants. Yeah, the powerhouses, yeah. Yeah, I mean, losing Mandela was a was a big one as well. Um, it's kind of you know well understood from it. Looking back at uh, Britain a few years ago when they lost Tony Benn, someone who was there right the way through the, the 20th century, never led a government, but was kind of in all the, the, the big movements. Um, and Fidel Castro was one of the greatest uh, of those figures of the 20th century. And the cult of personality thing is Israel. He was an enormous figure. Uh, he ends up having these kind of quite bizarre friendships sometimes even politically strange ones I was talking to my friends the other day about uh, very counterintuitive but when Castro um, held three days in mourning when Francisco Franco the Spanish dictator died because he had developed this really strong personal uh, friendship Mm. with him now of course that would run totally across my political lines um, and and most left wing people Um, but he he was able to do this I don't know if you've seen these uh, internet rumours flying around about Trudeau in the last last few days there's all this right wing conspiracy campaign coming out of Canada that Justin Trudeau is actually Fidel Castro's son and there's all these images uh, comparing Justin Trudeau and Fidel Castro (laughs) but the, the origin of that is the fact that Pierre Trudeau, right, when he became Prime Minister of Canada uh, and his wife, uh, developed these really strong connections with uh, with Castro, so much so that Castro was, played a prominent role at Pierre Trudeau's funeral. Now, they obviously would not have been, you know, you get this communist leader in Cuba and this kind of very middle-of-the-line uh, Prime Minister of Canada, uh, but he had this uh, ability this, to, to, to have a, a very deep and long understanding of history. Castro read voraciously. He was a phenomenal public speaker. Um, things that actually we are losing uh, in politics in the late 20th and 21st century. These grand figures aren't, weren't just grand figures because, uh, you know, they were uh, they played important historical roles in one or two things. They had certain characters to them. Uh, you think of you know those big American presidents and Lyndon Johnson, say for instance, and so on. These people who had, were extraordinarily well read in the history of the countries that they were in. They had an understanding of how the world had developed to the point that it had reached. Uh, they had a, a, a grasp of being a figure on the world stage and what that meant. Castro is a great example of that. He understood that he was consciously participating in the making of history and he behaved in a way that was befitting of it. There are very, very few world leaders in the 20th century 
or 21st century, I should say, who operate in the same way, who are yeah. willing to uh, to do that. And that that is uh, something that Castro stood out. For, for a communist man, he had a fierce love of Adidas tracksuit tops. Yeah. A fear, like I've never seen a man in so many different Adidas tracksuit tops. It was a great, right, it was a great meme online there the other day. You know, people were saying, say what you want about Fidel Castro, but he was willing to meet the Pope in a, in a tracksuit jacket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then someone was like, uh, they mentioned JD Sports or something. Yeah, one yeah, of yeah, Black, yeah, something yeah. through Black Friday. That yeah. was the other side, wasn't it? He on Black Friday, for God's sake. Um, final capitalist. Before we move on about Castro, it, like, was he a dictator? Never held an election, did he? You would have to say that Fidel Castro was at least a, an autocrat. Um, uh, and I, I have a problem with that as a, as a leftist. I don't, I don't think that it's appropriate for us to um, support ways of doing politics that result in a single figures being leaders of countries for decades uh, and amassing such an amount of power. But I also know on the other side that Cuba was under a siege uh, and that the reality of it being on a war footing with him trying to be assassinated 600-odd times uh, was that sometimes, you know, uh, the ability to, to move political freedom out versus moving power inwards, which is what happened in Cuba, is a question of the context you're in. In order to try and hold off the biggest empire in the world, they concentrated power enormously. But the, the price of that was... Uh, exactly as you say, a society that had Fidel Castro as its leader for decades um, in a way that really isn't very democratic. Is that 600 figure an exaggeration? I don't think it is, no. I've, I know, like I've heard it reported so much, but then I'm also kind of saying to myself, at what point and at what number of attempts does somebody say, you're sacked? That's it. You can't get the job done. Get out. See, oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, well, you see, part of it was they were subcontracting. It was a bit like the bombing, right? They subcontracted. They do. They subcontracted all loads of these things out to the, to the Cubans 800 in, in, in South Florida. <laughs> so uh, it was the same with the, the bombing as well in, um, of, the, of the Cuban airline. That What they do is they subcontract these things out to, like, often cases it was the Cubans in South Florida, right? So the exiles. And they'd be going across and carrying out these things, but they would they wouldn't have been trained um, to the same to the same degree. Uh, and all the, all that being said, they had some ingenious plots that just didn't quite work. I mean, the one with the exploding cigar, yeah, uh, is uh, yeah. is an amazing idea that they were gonna that they had uh, managed to to smuggle in uh, cigars that uh, were going to explode with highly. Uh, um, it's like something you'd see in a cartoon. When he lights it, it just goes, and then he has no eyebrows, and his face is all black from all the char. Like, yeah. <laughs> They had another one where they, they put a load of poison in a swimsuit. So they yeah. um they, they managed to get in, like, I think it was a scuba diving outfit or whatever, over to them with a load of poison in it. Um, they had all kinds of Bot- ingenious Botox. plots. Botox and cigars, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. They, had, they had all kinds of ingenious plans of uh, how to how to assassinate them. And, uh, I mean, it, it helped his, uh, his mythology that he managed to avoid all those. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah 11 presidents. Yeah. Sure, didn't JFK tr- uh, get a load of cigars out of... Cuba. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was that famous yeah. one. The last thing he did, uh, you know, it's always hard to know with these things uh, how much of them is true and how much isn't. But the rumor around JFK was that he was uh, waiting to sign. He had the document all done up for the, the blockade for the executive order, and uh, he waited until just until he got the managed to get the cigars <laughs> in, got them into the office, <laughs> into the drawer, and then signed. The signed it. There you go. I wouldn't be surprised. Wouldn't be no. either. JFK. Um, we move on from Fidel, will we? Yeah, I think so. 
where do you want to go next, lads? I wanted, wanted you said earlier in your introduction about um, about Bush. So previously, myself and Danny have uh, been talking about Trump, and Danny had alluded to the fact that he thinks Trump's uh, four years will be all talk, no action in terms of some of the, the opinions he voiced uh, throughout the campaign. I want to ask you firstly, in terms of Bush, because everyone had the same fear of when Bush was going, was running for election. So firstly, what's what's Bush, George W. Bush's legacy? And then secondly, are we really to fear about Donald Trump or is it, as Danny says, kind of all talk, no action? On a lot of things, not on, on everything. Things. Not on everything. Not on everything, yeah. Jo- George Bush's legacy, uh, I mean, the biggest thing, obviously, that stands out is Iraq. The Iraq um, war, because yeah. what, what he managed to do in Iraq, I mean, even by the standards of American foreign policy, is an enormous fuck-up. I mean, you managed to destroy um, the, the stability of the region in a way that has rippled on now for decades and produced, in many ways, the catastrophe that's now uh, you know, happening in, in Iraq and in, and in Syria. Um, at the very least, I mean, you, you go in to try and remove uh, a so-called jihadist uh, terrorist threat, which really wasn't all that present in Iraq, and you end up producing ISIS. I mean, there can be only so many examples of history where things have gone worse than that. Um, so he, uh, his biggest legacy is Iraq, but he has a load of them. I mean, and this is one of the things that is worrying for, for, for Trump, is that Bush created this massive national security state. You know, remember the Patriot Act and all of those kind of um, infringements on civil liberties in the U.S. He also uh, was responsible for the warrantless wiretapping, the government surveillance programs mm-hmm. he instituted um torture as a policy in the united states and opened guantanamo uh, or used guantanamo bay for that at the very least uh, as well as having this kind of rendition program of black sites which took a huge step around a lot of what was the standard practice before and really created this murky gray area where torture could be subcontracted out to people and other regimes which he did with Gaddafi and and, and so on. Uh, and the problem really with Obama, and there are many problems with Obama, but one of the things Obama didn't do, he came into office and what he said was, okay, we're looking forward, we're not looking back. Uh, so in those cases where laws were broken, we're just going to not deal with them and we're going to say, okay, um, that was what they did uh, and, and we're coming into something else. Now, in many cases he did, Obama in some ways was worse and the drone war and so on was worse, but he obviously wasn't uh, as destructive to the world as uh, as George W. Bush. But what he did by saying when he came in, okay, we're moving forward, we're not going to prosecute any of these cases, we're not going to prosecute on torture, we're not going to prosecute on warrantless wiretapping and government surveillance, or uh, we're not going to repeal, but we're actually going to strengthen things like the Patriot Act, uh, is he made it... Uh, acceptable policy and uh, something now that that really would be very hard to challenge. So that means the huge state security apparatus created by George W. Bush, which allowed for, you know, like I said, surveillance and torture, um, locking people up with very limited uh, pretense around political crimes and so on, is now going to be handed over to Trump. So that is one of the most dangerous parts of, of Bush's legacy. But it isn't only his legacy. It's also the legacy of Barack Obama for continuing many parts of it, crucial parts of it, and uh, for not challenging the parts that he, he broke from. Um, what I think about Trump and what, what he will do, 
uh, is difficult. There's two things. One would be, you know, Trump himself and the man in the present. And the other would be the administration. The Trump administration is shaping up very, very badly. I mean, the people he is appointing to key positions, whether it be, uh, you know, people who support uh, charter school programs and are, are creationists in the Department of Education. Say, creationist in the Department of Education. In the Department of Education. That's it. Uh, Motherage. What, what is that? So uh, somebody who comes from the creationist line of thinking, oh yeah, we are created, we are not. They don't buy into the evolution thing. So the big thing in America is that creationists argue that um, schools should atten- essentially teach creation, i.e. like a divine being has put us here, blah, blah, blah. They Adam and Eve, the, yeah. the world is only a few thousand years old. Exactly, yeah, dinosaur fossils and all that are... Planted by God to trick us, <laughs> <laughs> to like, test us. All that sort of crack, and they want to teach that as like school material, as opposed to kind of saying, "Okay, well, being this, open-minded." This, like. this is this is what a book that was written by people says, as opposed to this is what science, with all its evidence, says. You know, it's crazy. Creationism is trust. So he's appointed as a guy as a head of uh, education. Um, so yeah. that that's a uh, look. Here's here's the good news. It's gonna be a four-year term. It's not going to be eight years. Whatever damage is done in four years by somebody like that in an education system, I think, can be unraveled fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. The thing that can't be undone in a four-year period is Trump's stance on climate change. Trump's stance on where the world is going in terms of climate change and all that. Because that, arguably, is the biggest problem mm-hmm. the entire world is facing. That's going to be a disaster, climate change. He then appointed somebody in his Justice Department who doesn't really believe in the Civil Rights Act, in your mind, Jeff Sessions, um, who's a senator from Alabama. I mean, and it goes across the board. I mean, the people he, who he is appointing to key positions are the fringiest of the fringe right-wingers, or actually, the other side of his, you know, drain-the-swamp uh, myth that he was creating during the campaign, there are major lobbyists uh, who are going to, to make things worse. So there isn't a single person in there from the list of people he's putting in so far who you couldn't say, you know, is either the fringe of the fringe on the right going to do really disastrous things or is going to make the bad parts of the system continue to be bad. Mm. Um, I think we have to see how, how, how Trump as a president, uh, aside from his administration, is going to shake out. It's not at all clear because this is somebody who is not a typical American president. I mean, I know people sometimes say, well, George Bush wasn't he elected. Trump is the only one to have been elected to this position without ever having held any government office, military office. I mean, uh, any of those positions that kind of acquaints you with the American state operation, American politics and how it works and so on. Um, and that, that makes him quite different. So we're going to have to see. My My suspicion is that what we're going to end up with with Trump is uh, a populist right-wing uh, president who's going to try, pick out wedge issues, try and get on the side of the 60% of them, hammer minority uh, opinion. Um, I think, you know, some of it will depend for Trump on what limitations are placed on him. So a president can't just operate like a king in the United States. Mm. You've got the limitations of having to get things passed through Congress, uh, and there's a Republican Congress, but the Republican Congress is quite different to Trump. You know, they're standard free market right wing types. Trump is this kind of national authoritarian populist, so almost they're, they're, too extreme even for them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on some on some grounds, uh, they'll be able to, uh, I'm quite sure, come to 
common uh, agreement on you know, tax cut stuff and cutting a load of really good um, socially progressive programs. But on a lot of stuff, they, they won't. Um, and then there's also the state apparatus that sits behind. I think one thing that's going to dictate how the Trump administration lands up right, is whether or not he is able to actually make a difference to the kind of constituencies I spoke about earlier, people mm. in the Midwest, and Ohio, and Pennsylvania, yeah. Michigan, who have been screwed by free trade. You see, yeah. I, I, I agree. This is, the, this is the thing, and I'm breaking kayfabe here, but it's all right. <laughs> Trump, he's a demagogue, and he's probably one of the greatest examples of a demagogue there is in this sort of populist stuff that he comes out with. And the thing is, everything he was saying is going to appeal to anybody who has never, ever, in any way, felt hurt by any sort of government, any sort of mass closure of a jobs plant, anything like that. So he's coming out and he's saying, like, you know, oh, these coal mines that have shut down, these car manufacturing plants that have shut down, when I'm president, I'm going to bring them jobs back. You're going to bring back coal mines? Really? Really? Come on, man. Right? You're going to, like... So then you have all that going on. Then you have him sort of saying the things like that you were alluding to there a second ago, where he's saying, "I'm going to ban lobbyists. They're going only, you know, politicians can only have a certain amount of years as a career. You can't come in in your twenties and stay until your seventies. Clever all, stuff, you know. All that is appealing to people who, you know, hate and air air quotes here the system. Yeah. So he's appealing to all this popular stuff that. Everybody is sort of, you know, as I said, everybody who has felt in any way damaged or hurt by governments for it's kind of like, this is what we need. We need an outsider. We need somebody who isn't in bed with the banks, i.e. Hillary. You know, and then what he done brilliantly well was these little names that he threw onto people that stuck. Mm. Lion Ted, Crooked Hillary. They stuck. So when you it think was, Hillary. It was a marketing campaign yeah. done in its most, I mean, the most crass but most effective. So when Trump was talking on policies, you know, you had Hillary Clinton, right? Her whole campaign, if it wasn't about, you know, why the other guy is worse, it was this kind of wonkish policy stuff where she'd be going off and giving these interviews to, to Vox and so on and talking yeah. about like little minor changes she was going to make here. On the other side, you got a fellow saying, okay, we got it. People think we have a problem with immigration. Build a wall. Yeah. People say we have a, a problem with uh, terrorism. We're going to ban all Muslims, and it was very, very straightforward, clear, simple proposals that he was making, but also ones that implied a kind of, uh, in a strange way, an ambition. You know, we're going to do big projects again, make yeah. America great again by doing big things, building a wall, banning them all. Very clear plans that he had. Now, they're also obviously uh, the most frightening plans from his um, from his proposal, but there was a it was a way of playing politics that read the moment. The Clinton yeah. people they really believed, you know, that we can set up a, an election in 2016 where we're going to put our responsibility up against Trump's anger and make ourselves look great. When I tell you what, going when when Hillary Clinton, the the, the moment that I felt things were going bad for them when Hillary Clinton decided she would respond to Trump's Make America Great Again with the slogan, America is already great. Because you go into places in Ohio and Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin that have been screwed by free trade and screwed by the economic policies of the last 20 years and tell them America is already great. It mirrors a huge amount of what went on in our election here with keep the recovery going. Mm-hmm. Wash shagging recovery. Yeah, it the the parallel is there. Like it's it's blatantly there. Like. And it's a it, what what they come from. Those kind of focus group 
nonsense uh, ideas for elections come from a political class that is totally insulated from the reality of what's yeah. going on. So you have people here in, in Fine Gael who they thought they were going to romp home in that election because they were operating within a very small uh, network of people, um, not only around government, but in terms of, you know, the big business that was lobbying government that was saying, look, you know, we're coming out, things are starting to grow again. Um, international uh, investors that were saying Ireland is an attractive place to go. The people who are benefiting in finance, pharma, technology and our economy from the beginnings of, of growth again, saying things are, are going are going well, you know, stick with it. Um, and then they also drove themselves, very much like Hillary, um, into a, a belief in what the press was saying. So the Irish press in large part has been wrong about you know almost all of the major developments last year is wrong about how the election was going to turn out they were wrong about the water charges in terms of how big that would be and how relevant that would be for people uh, then they were uh, wrong about you know playing up and building up the housing uh, crisis that resulted in the crash and also wrong about how that election was going to go uh, they were a small kind of uh, circle jerk um, of people and it really is like that right who are all talking to each other and all professing right sounding sense you know and <laughs> turn around and all saying these you know right sounding opinions to each other but actually when you look at how it corresponds to what's happening on the ground it does very little and Fine Gael bought into to that and Hillary Clinton was even worse in the United States I mean she believed that because all of the people in the the big media outlets were saying oh you know hillary clinton is the greatest thing since size pan donald trump is completely unacceptable you know and uh, we're horrified by him people were you know uh, even horrified by the idea he was in the race you know obviously visibly uncomfortable um with that she believed because that was how they were in new york and yeah. washington and los angeles that that's how people were going to be feeling in like i said in the midwest or in Arizona, or in Nevada, and all these other places, and they weren't. No. Uh, and that's the, that's one of the big features of this era of politics, is a political class who, because they're integrated into uh, big business in the media, and because many of them right, uh, have been operating in a way of doing politics for decades, that has brought a kind of continuity. One follows another, follows another. Uh, they're totally divorced from, from uh, the communities they're meant to represent, and they open a door for these big shocks, which is not just Trump, but Brexit. Brexit and I think what yeah. we're possibly going to see in, in France next year. Well, well. I think, I, I think it, uh, that's a great segue for us in a way, because those big shocks and that kind of insular opinion of people who are within this kind of circle and within this bubble and they're not looking beyond the bubble, but outside the bubble there's a big angry mob who want their voices heard. Now, in one sense the big angry mob kind of surfaced come Brexit. But in another sense, with the British general election, you could argue that it was a little bit weird in the sense I certainly didn't expect the Tories to romp home the way they did. But then, off the back of that, you get Jeremy Corbyn being mm-hmm. elected the leader of the Labour Party, which also I didn't see happening. So It's a bit about like... I was going to say, so there's kind of a swings and roundabouts there, but I suppose now, since certainly... Since November 13, 2015, the world is a different place after the attacks in Paris. Mm. You start to see this, you know, and I know it was was a voted word of the year by dictionary.com or something. This is xenophobic, xenophobia kind and, of thing. And Miriam Webster's, by the way, uh, word of the year is going to be fascism. Uh, so oh, there you go. Th- things are going well in general, obviously. Um, <laughs> but, uh, 
But uh, yeah, I mean, the Corbyn one was interesting. <coughs> there was a start out uh, just last week. I was I was looking at the, what was happening in, in Britain and fascinating. In off the back of the the autumn statement, um, mm. uh, they were saying that this will be the longest period um, of, of uh, wage depression in Britain since eighteen fifties. Um, that real wages have stagnated now for such a long time that there's nothing that can really compare to it in the 20th century. Um, And that is not just happening in Britain. Um, There's been a wage stagnation pretty much since the 70s in the United States. In France, there's been this decline of huge sections of... um, And it's particularly, right, there's this really interesting graph. People call it the elephant graph. Now, I don't think it's the answer to all of all questions um, because it's become very kind of faddish in the last while. But it's worth looking at. It talks about what, what's the effect of globalization been since the end of the 20th century. And what it shows is this kind of increase uh, in, in wealth uh, for uh, sections of the middle classes in places like China and India and Brazil and so on. But then an absolute plunge of the living standards of uh, working class people and lower middle class people in the West and then a shoot up on the other side for the top 1%. So it's laying out, you know, left to right, the kind of uh, from the the poorest to the richest in the world. And there's this increase uh, of wealth going on in in parts of the the global South, um, particularly on the middle classes of those brick economies. But then there's a collapse uh, in the in the living standards of uh, working class and lower level middle class people in um, in the West, and that can go on for a certain amount of time, right? But eventually, that reaches a tipping point where people start saying, that, like in America, uh, you know, the threats that you are making about what could happen if I vote for Donald Trump no longer scare me as much as the reality of what will happen with another eight years like this. Another eight years where there's no wage growth, my services are getting worse, my prospects in life are getting worse, I don't have a pension, I'll be eight years closer to retirement and there's nothing going on there. Uh, people stop, uh, uh, there's this stuff about, you know, Project Fear, they were talking about in Brexit, right? Project Fear isn't working because, not because actually there isn't some things to fear, there bloody well is things to fear coming around the corner with the Trump presidency or Le Pen in France and whatever, but a lot of people feel like they have more to fear now from what is happening and the way the society is going. I, I, I want to challenge that in a way, though, because I do think fear is a big driver of things. But at the same time, despite what we see in the news and despite what we read technically, the world has never been as safe as it is now. We're in a prolonged period of peace. We're in a prolonged period of, you know medical improvisations and medical developments that we've never seen before we're on this unparalleled trajectory of vast improvements in communications and technologies and you know the 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 standard of living for an awful lot of people has gone up and that's evident in the fact that people are living longer and all these things so uh, like i'm not saying i disagree with kind of what you're saying but this fear as a commodity almost buying into it is honing in on isolated things and then blowing them up I'm going to go and be very cliche at this point and say uh, right if you read the Communist Manifesto (laughs) (laughs) no but if you do right uh, what you'll find is the first sections of the Communist Manifesto are a pay on to capitalism I mean it's almost embarrassing how much Max and Engels spend uh, praising the system in, in that Capitalism is the greatest system 
of economics and political organization that the world has ever seen. It has brought unparalleled amounts of wealth and development. It has lifted huge parts of the world out of poverty. And it is also grinding to a halt in its ability to do what a critical mass of people in the West particularly wanted to be able to do. It's not only that, and I'll come back to the Global South in a minute, but yeah. what you've got to remember is when when you're saying what you're saying, and that's, that's true. I mean, we now have this enormous technological advance. There are far better living conditions now than there were in, in, in decades and, uh, past, not to mention the centuries past. Uh, there has been less war, uh, no question, on the scale, say, for instance, of, of world wars, although there's been this kind of continuous war that's been going on forever, the war on terror and so Fair on, point, but it's yeah. been, a, been at a, a kind of a, a lower scale than that. Uh, but what people think of uh, when, when we're living, I mean, the world has always refracted through our, our uh, direct experiences. And people's, well, what they think of when they're looking at their, their life is, you know, what do I expect what happened with the generation before me? How did they get on? What are my expectations for life? How is my expectations measured up to what the reality is? And um, when you begin to look at the world in that sense, for an awful lot of uh, working people in the West, the expectations that they had coming out of the 70s and into the 80s and so on versus how it shaped up have been so far short in terms of like stagnant uh, wages and inability to collect wealth, decline in services and social conditions and so on, that even though the truth is, as you say, on, on, the, on the macro scale, a lot of positive things have happened, uh, it has not been happening for them. And there's enough people now in the West, I'm saying like, you know, coming up to majorities now in across the Western societies who feel that way to be able to, to throw this banner into the works. But even then, on the other side of this, when we talk about, you know, how capitalism is working, if we would, the last eight years, let's, let's be real about it, have been one of the greatest economic declines that the system has ever seen. It's gone on longer and been deeper, actually, in many ways than the, the Great Depression. Mm. Uh, imagine what that would have been like without world record growth rates in China and in India. Right? The world economy would have been in an absolute position of collapse. Now we're beginning to see slowdowns happening in the global south. And that's where the situation gets even more precarious. So when, when you say global south, where, like... I particularly mean, right, for when I'm talking about the big economies, yeah. uh, China, India, Brazil, Brazil mm -hmm. now, as we, as we know, we were talking about earlier with the situation where Dilma was removed. I mean, it, it's hit a real economic rut. These are massive countries, huge economies with the ability to keep the global economy going because of the level of uh, industrial capacity that they have. They are now reaching stages where uh, they're beginning to slow down. And, and we're actually coming into a period that I think we're going to start calling deglobalization. We're coming into a stage where um, world trade is beginning to contract. The uh, ability for the likes of, of uh, China and India to continue their growth is declining, and in a large part because there's no longer as much demand coming from the West. Right, so the demand has has declined. They're going to start looking in at trying to build up their own internal middle classes and so on. That's going to slow down their economic growth. And the question comes, you know, where is the next phase of, like, where is the next golden period coming from? Like every stage of capitalist decline, what has followed it has been a period of great 
boom and growth. You think of the, the era, the New Deal, and so on after the uh, the Second World War. There doesn't seem to me not easily able to see anyway a, a, a new period like that coming around the corner. What looks more like to me is that we're going to have this long period of stagnation um, with low levels of growth. Uh, technological advances yeah but in a particular way not in a way that's creating a whole series of new jobs actually this we're starting to see automation removing jobs we're starting to see the because technology is happening at that phase at the kind of lower phase of making day-to-day jobs easier rather than say catapulting us to a new planet or whatever um we're starting to see automation eating into uh the a lot of the jobs that people would have would have done and that's probably going to be a threat to work so we're probably going to have less work in the economy um and i don't actually see where this next uh, period of great capitalist growth is coming from which uh, when you when you begin to look forward and not be able to see a future that's when you start to worry about the you know, potential of a trump and a le pen and all those other other kind of movements and okay. back home bertie Ahern. make ireland great again <laughs> well what are you suggesting that he's not going to be great when he comes back <laughs> well i was listening to uh radio during the week it was proposed that he just come back into the party as an advisory role and not run for office and look at the knowledge he would bring <laughs> yeah. be tremendous i for one would welcome him back with open he'd arms. go for the presidency in 2018 no i don't think he will i think I wouldn't be surprised no i think th- that ship has sailed from and i think he's gonna do the entire presidency from that broom cupboard <laughs> yeah <laughs> all of his addresses it's gas yeah. because matt cooper went uh they, they went to the streets of drocondra to see uh, people's reactions and all the, the women say that sounded like they were in the 50s or 60s. Yeah. They're like, oh, be brilliant. He was great for us. He was brilliant. And then all the lads are like, no, fuck him. I want yeah. them. See, th- this, th- that a little bit, I don't know. I might have took what you were saying there a second ago wrong. I just want to make sure that I haven't. Kind of from what you were saying, it is, uh, it's almost like a regressive thing. Like, where does previously the attitude of the world was always look outward always look beyond what's next and always look to see what you can expand upon whereas now with the emergence of the likes of le pen and with the emergence of these sort of people you're kind of saying no look inward and that's maybe what brexit reflects and that's maybe what voting for trump reflects this whole thing of we don't want to look outwards anymore we want to look inwards we want to be an insular society we want I don't think this is what Bruce Springsteen was actually singing about when he said it, but this we take care of our own mentality and we look inwards before we even think about looking outwards. So that comes from this kind of state of, I'm not saying fear it again, we've said it enough, but this want for a kind of feeling of security. And that's maybe what them Owens who love Bertie are saying because they associate Bertie with them having an extra few bob in their pocket. Or them one, of, one of the most powerful tools of all of what you're describing there in those movements is nostalgia. Yeah, there you go, yeah. It's, not, yeah. it's make, make America great again. Now, yeah. of course, this is where the, one of the big divisions comes. I mean, America didn't look pretty great to the people in you know, uh, the South in the 1960s who were yeah. uh, suffering from Jim Crow laws and so on. But what it does is it gives people a sense that, you know... Um, Exactly what we were saying. You, know, you can return to that period where your expectations in life looked rosier. Your parents were doing better. Um, you can take back a bit of this. Is the other thing that the the slogan of uh, the Brexit campaign: "Take back control." I mean, 
people have this sense that uh, they romanticize you know the the, the past uh, and that is a very potent weapon because there's a sense that you know well, back in the day we had control before globalization came along and all of our jobs were kind of thrown onto this international carousel and who knows where it's going to end controlled by multinational corporations and whatever uh, we had a sense of control in the community I mean there mightn't have been great jobs down the mines but at least there were jobs and they were here and we knew them and they were going to be able to be passed yeah. on to your son and whatever Um and globalization, what it did is it just whipped out the, the uh, sheep from underneath all these people's feet and left them feeling like they didn't know what they, where they were standing, where their place in the world was. And, uh, and that's why nostalgia becomes such a powerful weapon. The problem with nostalgia, of course, is it's been a, a tool of all the far-right movements in, in history, is that, you know, this argument that we're going to retake uh, the countries that we're in and we're going to take them back... Uh, there's a real danger to movements that are, that, that's the term revanchist, uh, with the movements that are looking to take back what has, you know, happened in the last period of time, because it often means taking it back from certain people. It doesn't just mean taking it back from globalization or whatever. Like, who are they taking things back from in America? They would take things back from all the gains made by civil rights that, uh, mm. you know, people are, a lot of people in the Trump movement are saying, oh, that, that has, you know, affirmative action, all these other things have given black people a leg up and past me and all this kind of stuff that we taking stuff, the community back from the Mexican immigrants and all these kind of things. Uh, nostalgia is a, is a, a very dangerous weapon. And, uh, and that's, I think, a big, big factor in what we've seen in the last kind of uh, few years now of the growing far right movements um, Jeremy Corbyn in England how has he got so popular um, in such kind of little time and as well as kind of beating a revolt within the party this, you know he's popular in one sense and unpopular in another I am dealing with the, the best parts of Corbyn um, what he's seen as representing is somebody who isn't corrupted this is a big, big thing, more so even than the socialist politics. When you go along to meetings of uh, Corbyn backers, and there's two kind of categories. There's the young, uh, urban, uh, technologically uh, savvy uh, Corbyn supporters who are kind of culturally liberal and so on. And then there's the older generation who are the people who went through the miners' strikes and so on in the 80s, fought against Thatcher, sided with Tony Benn, and then basically abandoned the Labour Party as they went to the right under Tony Blair. They're those two different kind of groups who, who back Corbyn. Tony Blair started a bit left though, didn't he? In what, what period? In 97? Yeah. Well, he was, I mean, when you just had a uh, uh, three Thatcher uh, governments and, and, a, and a major um, a lot of things look left yeah uh, okay uh, but um, he did in, increase health spending and he did some interesting things uh, NHS yeah but at the same time he introduced privatisations and um, so there are very few like when you look back at his whole administration there are very few things that stand out as re you know remaining left wing but the, the how did Jeremy get in then do you know like like when Tony Blair left Labour, it was right. Mm -hmm. And then Jeremy Corbyn, George Galloway, Tony Benn, all those uh, all those MPs, they would have been against kind of Tony Blair's views. Yeah, but I think what you have to remember is when Tony Blair left, you also had Gordon Brown. Yeah, Millibans. None of them so were as left as Jeremy. No, but I, think, what I think when you've seen 
regression within that and then you see this massive failure on Miliband's part to be able to sort of rally the troops for mm. want of a better term but that's what I'm trying to get and at how did Jeremy rally the troops and everyone else fail when Jeremy has kind of come from he hasn't a kind of an opposite yet, though, but he hasn't rallied anybody what, what, what he's managed to do Internally is take over the party I mean and this is, this is, a, this is an important has. point right so Jeremy Corbyn is the leader of the biggest opposition party in Britain the Labour yeah. Party he's the most left wing leader it's ever had so I mean it's, a, it's another one of those historic things that we haven't really seen and it is part of the same phenomenon of the governing centre is collapsing and then we're seeing responses on the left and responses on the right to that um, Corbyn managed to win because exactly as you were saying there was this pat there was this long uh, movement so there was Blair and then they, there was Brown they lost under Brown and then they had Miliband uh, and Miliband lost that general election right and there was a question um, posed really to the membership at that point do you accept conventional logic which was you know we lost this election because we were too left wing uh, and that's why the Tories beat us uh, which means of course the implication of that is that after so many years of a right wing drift we're going to go to the right again uh, or are you going to say no and move in the other direction and I think on a, on a number of key issues uh, Corbyn picked the mood of, of where the membership uh, of the Labour Party and the broader voter base of the party were uh, the opposition to wars which was a big one, so Corbyn being a vocal opposition to the uh, opponent of the Iraq War, um, but also of the many wars uh, that Britain was was fighting at the time. Um, opposition to, to further austerity. Um, so when after they lost to the Tories in May 2015, the mainstream argument was, OK, we've got to embrace more austerity. And so during the leadership campaign, you saw things like... Um, uh, all of the other contenders voting in favour of major welfare cuts in, in, in Parliament, or actually they abstained on major welfare cuts. They didn't vote in favour, but the Labour Party officially abstained with the support of all the other uh, candidates. And the Labour membership were like, well, you know, we're not, we're not having that, we're not dealing with that. Um, and, uh, and then there was also the, the new kind of new politics question which is, you know, Jeremy Corbyn came forward promising a politics that was going to be more relatable to people, was going to be more honest and, and straightforward and all that kind of stuff. And as a character, he he, he uh, put that forward very well because he's a very plain guy, you know, he's out there making his jam and planting in his allotment and whatever else, you know. And, and, and like Danny. A, there was a large sense of people... Um, I do love jam. There <laughs> was a large sense of people that people responded to that. Now, the, exactly as Danny said, the weakness. There's a, there's a massive weakness to Corbyn too. I mean, I, I really like him as a, as a figure. I mean, every time he... he uh, you know when he when he goes and he stands up for for things against the kind of hyena press in Britain and they really are I mean unlike almost anywhere else in the world the British press it is insane are I, vicious I, I love going on to broadsheet just to read the front page of the various British papers because the contrast is hysterical like and they are I mean, that that word is exactly right to describe like some of their reactions to Corbyn when they were doing that whole thing did he bow deeply enough at the cenotaph and then there was yeah. one there recently right where he was walking down the road chatting to someone on um, Memorial Day and uh, uh, they took pictures of him and implied he was dancing and all this kind of ludicrous stuff right I mean he has to deal with that all the time and you think well this guy is some spine but he has real flaws as a leader Can um, he win an election? I was about to say I don't I don't think right now that he's that no. he's going to now you know one asterisk we got to put here on all of these conversations is uh, 
Trump won, Brexit won, Le Pen could win. I mean, the the, the way things are going, the speed at which the world is moving, uh, it's not it, it's not impossible. You know, anyone who's able but to shout. Um, the, the, uh, just to add an asterisk to the asterisk, so to speak. The only thing is, I would say, I personally thought I maybe rolled it in a bit after the whole um, sexual comments that Trump came out. Well, that that whole thing, grab her by the, yeah. the the genitals or whatever it was. But to me, a Trump win seemed far more likely than, and I remember saying it to you at the time, that people are sleeping on this, that like, and it's again, a lot of what you touched on, that the whole, you know, make America great again, playing on that whole kind of like, immigration's a problem, we'll build a wall, we'll send them home, this kind of stuff. Like, I I, I just think that people slept on the Trump thing. So Jeremy's going to need a, a slogan like, make our new Labour, new new Britain or something like that. He's, he's going to need a lot more than a catchy slogan, yeah. I think. The, the problem with, with Corbyn is he's a, he's a very bad yeah. populist and some of the reasons yeah. for that are built in. So it goes back um, to long-standing problems with English socialism, which is that it's always been more Methodist than Marxist it's because of its it's because of its tradition. And Corbyn is the vicar. He's the moral leader standing up there um, saying, you know, the things that very often are unpopular but that he believes are are morally uh, correct. He's not able to channel anger. So this is an era of anger where people are justifiably angry at the way the system is operating. Corbyn's response to anger rather than to channel it in in the right direction is to put his arm around the shoulder uh, and talk about, you know, togetherness and community and this, that and the other. Um, And... The way that way he has a practicing uh, of practicing politics, um, not really believing in a fundamental way that politics is a question of power. You know how you get it, how you exercise it. You know, so for me, you know, politics is a question of uh, how we take wealth and power off the people who are at the top of society. And mm. and the question is, well, you know, how do you do that? You need a strategy to do it. And for Corbyn, politics is framed in the moral way. And uh, there's a lot to like about that at a certain level. You know, in the same way that I liked, you know, Tony Benn and his approach to politics. But even he was willing to be hard and nosed on the strategy questions. I feel and to put himself forward in a more a tactful way than than uh, than Corbyn has. Do you, do you think Corbyn, let's just say, an election does come and he does go up against Theresa May? Do you think Corbyn will have the backbone to be ruthless in a debate? Will he have that sort of guttural instinct where if he sees her stumble, he'll be willing to push her? I personally don't think he will. I think there's two things going on there. Uh, on the question of backbone, I would uh, I think this about Corbyn. You know, he managed to win that campaign to retain the Labour leadership against the entirety of his party, all of the media, all the big mm. business interests, and everything. He, he went through it. There was a there's a book actually by a guy called Alex Nunn's called The Candidate, and it goes through one meeting that they had with the Parliamentary Labour Party, where Corbyn was. Uh, just after they, they had the vote and no confidence in him. Um, and they're all sitting around and it's like one after another after another insulting him. And not just him, but not just like his politics, but his character. Saying, you're not, you know, a man. You can't lead this party. You're too weak. And, you know, you're dragging us, uh, dragging the whole thing down. You're destroying a movement and your own ego and all this. And he, and the, the comments afterwards that nuns manages to produce from like staffers of right-wing Labour MPs were like, that was the most brutal political meeting I've ever seen. Corbyn gets out of that meeting, gets up off the floor and goes and wins the campaign. So I think he has the backbone. The problem is he doesn't have the, he doesn't have the way of doing things. It isn't in his character and his way of practicing politics to go for the, the throat. 
Yeah. And that is what's going to hold him back, is that he he isn't doesn't just appear as the kind of nice old man of uh, of British politics who you can have a huge amount of respect for and who very often it will be on the right side of history let's be honest uh, he actually is that he's too much of the, the nice old man uh, I say all that of course um, fully thinking that what his breakthrough against Blairism is right because the only response in the next few years that we're going to have to rising right-wing populism, nationalist and authoritarian populism, is a class populism. There's no way that people like the people in the Labour Centre believe, you know, that we can go around saying the system is more or less working, it's it's all right, uh, and, you know, we're going we're gonna to continue with a few tweaks. Uh, if the left doesn't get itself into a position where it can speak to people's anger and to the failures of the system in a clear way that says, you know, the system isn't working, it's broken for a majority of people, and here are four or five clear ways we're going to fix it that will improve your life and we're going to do it by taking on the establishment and the the rich and the political class and if we don't get a way of saying that uh, well then we're done I mean because we just saw in America what happens when uh, liberalism tries to take on uh, Donald Trump and it's an ice cream in a a fire We're we're running out of time Ronan but kind of I want to close off maybe by sticking with the town you're going with there and say like Domestically, uh, not even domestically. Just uh, d- domestically, yes, but but on a broader spectrum as well. You, we're talking about kind of that that whole thing of the rise of the right, so to speak, or the reemergence of the right. Is one of the problems then that's facing the left, the fact that the left seems to not just be split, but it seems to be shattered in terms of you know you've got part of the left that's very very left you've got part of the left that's basically right you've got part of the left that's stuck in the middle and then you've got so many in between each of those factions that every time you turn your head you're like hang on which way are you again is there is there too much going on on the left that there's no unity there would that then suggest that there's no stronger like there's no real left in Ireland at the moment is there well, here's what I would say about the left and it being splintered, and it's true. There's no doubt about it. It's not just. Uh, I mean, there's some some people on the left seem to think, you know, oh, people look in on us and they say we're splintered, but sure, you know, we're no more splintered than the right. It's not true, actually. People who look at the left and see that are right. But what you got to remember is, uh, it's actually harder. Uh, to be on the side that's trying to fundamentally change the system rather than the side that's resting on it. So historically, the left has been the side that's been about, you know, winning improvements for uh, ordinary people, but also for those who are, you know, oppressed and and, and in minority positions in society. Mm. Uh, versus the right, which has been about the retention of hierarchy and order and uh, and, and stability in society, um, and particularly the defence of uh, of uh, you know, property rights of of those who are the wealthiest. It's harder to be on the other side to that question, right? So mm-hmm. there's a lot more strategic debate because most of the time we lose and most of the time they win. Um, but I do think you're right that we have to overcome that. Uh, and the way I see of doing it, I think Bernie Sanders' approach in the United States is more or less exactly where we need to be, which is that we need to pick uh, as as a left to bring us together. We need to stop allowing the kind of uh, the cultural divides, um, the divides of the of his history, um, the national position, and so on, to to divide us, and to just get back to being a left that has two things: a program to improve people's lives with bread and butter issues and a vision for what the future looks like. If we can get back to saying, like in Ireland, you know, what the, the left should be able to unite behind a program that says we're going to build 
50,000 public houses and introduce rent controls to deal with the ridiculous housing crisis. We're going to have a proper national health service that uh, means that there aren't record numbers on trolleys in our hospitals and people can get universal free health care that they don't have to be worrying about. Uh, we're going to have uh, a decent standard of uh, work, which means, you know, the uh, having a living wage, uh, having guaranteed hours in, in contracts, but also creating an economy um, rather than just talking all the time, as, as I think a lot of people on the left do, about uh, you know what's wrong. We have to be able to actually say what an economy will look like. So 21st century economy where uh, we're going to be able to use the benefits of technology not just to accrue wealth for tiny percentages of population while automation takes away a whole load of jobs from society, but actually... We use automation to mean we have to work less time, to mean that the benefits of technology improves the lives of ordinary people rather than puts more stresses on them by monitoring them more, uh, by you know uh, cutting back the ability they have to have freedom in their work and so on. Um, we have to be able to talk about a program like that that transforms people's lives in clear ways and then we have to be able to put a vision forward that says, well, here's what our future is going to look like. It has to be optimistic and realistic. Uh, one that says we don't believe that a society based on these enormous wealth inequalities is really democratic. We're going to use the incredible technologies that we have developed, that you rightly put forward, to actually democratize the society. Now we have an ability to make the key decisions, like many of key decisions in any uh, business uh, of any large scale uh, and in the economy itself uh, have real democratic input. It takes two seconds. If you think of like what the task of democratizing the economy would have looked like 100 years ago, when you would have had to get these mass goddamn meetings together where everyone was voting on what goes in the sandwiches before you were able to get like anything done, now democracy can mean simply a click of a button on a device that's in your pocket that allows you to have a say on what's happening in your life. What possible justification do we have for not envisioning a society where the economy looks more like that and politics looks more like that? And so we should be able to put forward that kind of a vision, combine it with a program that's going to be improving people's lives in a clear way, and then we have a real chance of taking on the populist right. If we don't, we're all in a bit of trouble because I don't think the centre and the establishment is going to be able to hold these guys off. And I don't think the left as it is at the moment is going to be able to hold these guys off. You're not too bad for the commies, you know that? <laughs> <laughs> that's what they tell me. <laughs> <laughs> that's, something, that's something coming from this yeah, well, right-wing dope. I, I agree with a huge amount of what you've said tonight, despite your better senses. That's, he um, felt like this when Richard Boy Barrett was on as well. And it you don't, did. Don't be going that. What I said. <laughs> no, you did. You what went from you went from uh, if Richard Boy Barrett gets elected, I'm moving. Exactly. And then <laughs> did hang you on, move? Hang on. He got elected. Did you and move? And he done nothing to help house prices. Did you move? So how can I move? <laughs> <laughs> right? and second of all, what I said was, he's not a bad bloke. <laughs> never said I was going to vote for. Him. He might get me number two, you said. No, I never said number two. I said about number nine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he actually ended up getting about number four, don't we? Which, like, Jesus Christ for me, like. Right. You know what I mean? But, um, well, that's, that's, uh, I must remember that now. It's a good way. If he gets you a, gets you a pint, gets a number four vote. <laughs> yeah. That could get me out of the line at some point in the future. <laughs> Do you see a future, like, 
as a in an office as opposed to in the background. You're gonna go for the big house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't think so right now because it's um, you know I would only do it if there's a project. I mean, this is the the thing about politics. I, I have respect for for Richard, but uh, I'm not in a political party in Ireland because I don't see any of the political parties really offering what I what I just outlined there. See, I respect that. I like that. Yeah, yeah. You're not just joining them for the sake of it because they have to do what you want them to. You're yeah. saying, no, look, I, yeah, I like so that. being independent. <laughs> uh, I think I think we need a project. I mean, I, I think the problem with the independence is clear, is that like, you know, I work with Joan Collins, who's an independent now in the doll, yeah. but the, the reality of it is, I mean, one person can't, can't uh, do what I just said and can't, can't change it. We need a project. You need something that's that's bigger. Um, but uh, the, the existing left parties uh, don't inspire me um, and haven't done uh, for a long time. Even when they're say, um, they do important things and I don't want to run down everyone that's in them at all because they really are sometimes the only voice to speak in a bit of uh, sanity when you know the housing crisis is happening and everyone is yeah. talking about you know okay grand house prices are on the way back let's pop the champagne corks yeah. and you need somebody there who's going to say well actually there's 2,500 children homeless this Christmas um, but uh, but none of them in- offer any kind of vision that inspires me and so I don't the, really believe in being in politics as an individual. I think you got to have a project. If one came along, I'd, I'd jump at the opportunity to, to be in it and we'd see where it would go. Do you think something like the United Left Alliance, though, has the merit or has the potential to develop into that sort of project that you're talking about? Uh, I, I don't think at the moment that any of the parties exist do. And, and one of the uh, reasons for that is that Inside the, the parliament, when you look at like where the anti-austerity alliance and people before profit are, like I said, I have a lot of people who I really respect in both of them, but they're separated now by a hair's breadth. Mm. They're parties that come from the same political tradition. Mm. Their rhetoric is almost exactly the same, the way they approach politics, the way they do it. And they can't even come together. And the most recent budget, they submitted two separate budgets. They were supposed to be running together in the election and they were running candidates against each other. Uh, and it isn't just that kind of uh, division that's the problem. Actually, it's a, fundamentally a way of, of practicing uh, politics. I think the left in this country doesn't offer people a vision of what it's going to do in the future. It spends an awful lot of time being in opposition to things and it spends an awful lot of time, sometimes it's necessary, you know, when things are going really bad and things are going wrong in the economy and there are injustices, but this is about actually winning and it's about changing the society and you can't do that by opposing things the whole time. You've got to have a vision and I don't find it from them. I, I think that's something that I'd, I'd hugely agree with in the sense that for me, part of what, part of what has torn me slightly off to, to be honest with you, look, I'm, I'm a political floater. Like, I don't really lean one way or the other. Um, but part of what would sort of put me off the left is that it's very easy at times to just shout from across the chamber something that is disagreeing with whatever the, the, the you know, soup de jour is for the, the government party that day. Like, But shouting an opposition message without any substance or without any... It's easy to point out a problem, but offer me an alternative. And there isn't an alternative solution being put forward sometimes. No. So. And it's hard. It's hard to do it. And uh, people actually sense that you're not doing the hard thing. And that's that's the 
that's the difficult one is that if you don't put forward a solution that can be realized people have a sense that you're you're being opportunistic yeah. and you're not being real about it and when the crises are as big as they are we have a responsibility to do more than that so you know we now have that situation in housing which is dreadful but it isn't just that you know we've been dealing now with this ridiculous situations in our hospitals mm-hmm. we have terrible and grown situations around you know uh, low hour contracts of people who are massively underemployed who can't afford yeah. their rents and, and standard living and so on is increasing uh, for whom you know it's going to be a pretty miserable uh, period when, coming up when you was a society that allows not only zero hour contracts but only upward only rent like how in the name of Jesus do you expect anybody to like that's just baffling like either one of them by themselves but yeah. but together how would you expect people to actually have a life like yeah and and you're looking at a situation now where I was looking at stats earlier today that uh, coming up on you know not just low paid but if you're in the bottom third in terms of uh, wages you're now likely to be spending around 60 to 70% of your uh, take home pay every month on your rent and that's before you've held your bills that's crazy, isn't it? So you're now you're now in a position. Uh, I mean, it's crazy. That is totally crazy, and it's unsustainable. Uh, and that means that a responsibility on us isn't just to say we're opposed to this and to march people up the hill and back down again, but actually, there's an urgent thing to solve it. You have to put forward a plan that can be realised, that can solve these social crises, and offer a more uh, offer a more hopeful vision. Um. And so I don't believe that it's enough to be in politics just to call out injustice and, and be opposed to it. You actually have to have a plan to overcome it. And people sense when you don't. Uh, so our responsibility should be to serve the people who were in there. I mean, this is why if you're going to practice politics differently on the left, that should be our perspective, which means you have to be tied to what people are looking for and what they need and making that real because i tell you in the doll every day you see it the housing industry have people like the developers have people who serve them the ifsc have big pharma have the you know major multinational investors the ifa i mean these people all have people who serve their interests and are willing to be pragmatic about serving their interests in the doll every single day lobbying people getting legislation changed and getting their agenda through who doesn't have people is actually the majority of society who is not doing very well uh, they have very little uh, voice in there that's brilliant it is it's a bit depressing to end yeah. <laughs> kind of feel like I want to leave the country now <laughs> well I mean okay, well, I won't fly off into my we can change it no but we can I mean this is the thing it's the if you learned anything right there's all this scary stuff we're saying yeah. on one side about uh, Trump and Brexit and Le Pen coming around the corner and all that uh, that is all true and it is all scary but you know what it also showed and we should remember this in even the biggest countries in the world, the most powerful countries in the world, when all of the political class and the big business and the media and all the rest were on one were on one side, they couldn't get their candidate over the line if there was enough of a sense that people were pissed off and there was there was a, an opportunity to move another way. Now, in those, all those cases, they were going in the wrong direction and, you know, the real problems coming from them. But it did show that the people who are ruling this are not as totally in control and impervious to popular anger and sentiment as we might have thought a few years ago. If you get organised and you get serious about changing things, you can do it because this lot who are on top of this thing are on stilts right now. Love it. Flipped it on its head. Love it. Love it. Love it. So we can change. (laughs) Change.
Change so isn't that what Obama problem. used? Yeah, but Sherlock. He got two terms. Trump will get two terms, won't he? He won't get two terms. He won't. He'll he'll f- four and done. If he makes four. He'll be impeached. <laughs> what do you think? By Christmas. <laughs> I, I, I don't see him doing any more than one term. Generally don't. Ronald? Depends if he can reach out to those people I said earlier in the Midwest. Yeah. If he manages to do something like gets a whole load of military jobs in infrastructure into Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, there's a possibility. If he doesn't do that and he ends up being just another kind of uh, puppet for lobbyists who is a bit nastier to immigrants, mm. and uh, you know, then he's not going to do he's not going to do well. There you go. Michigan particularly is a really poor state. Ah, there's a lot of them, but yeah. Um, Ohio is another one that struggles. Um, that that entire that that Bible Belt Rust Belt region are going to be key. That whole and then like look, I know to talk about swing states and all that in America, but in four years' time, we're going to be having this conversation again, and it's going to be, you know, I mean, realistically, <laughs> is he going to? Like, I'm not even confident the the Republicans will keep him. As the incumbent and let him run again. Like I'm, I'm just not convinced that they'd let him do it. Like you know what I mean. Um, I think Ted Cruz put himself in a position where he's definitely going to be able to give Trump a bit of a run in terms of challenging him. Four years time for it, the the Republican nod, but I, I don't see anybody on the Republican side that would um, inspire, so to say. It's going to be, I tell you this about the next uh, four years. Um, if I, the last six months showed out and trying to predict what's going to happen too far. Yeah, because yeah, I was yeah, going to, be, I was going it's to say. It's going to be a hell of a task. Because yeah. Fianna Fáil will probably be back in power in Ireland. With yeah, Bertie. With Bertie. And the reanimated corpse of Eamon de Valera and <laughs> Charles Hawley. <laughs> and Jerry Adams could be president. And the Pope is coming. I mean, Ireland is going to be great again. Oh, guys. God. Yeah. She's been on our right. I forgot the Pope was coming. Yeah. I can't wait Back for to the old, Phoenix Park Eucharistic Congress Let's get it on They'll probably be ah, They'll probably Congress. sell tickets This time round I wouldn't be surprised Well if that Mass page That was on Facebook A while ago Was having to go boy, <laughs> The mass page It was a great old page the People are in Crow, around Crow Park It'll be the same As the Garrett Brooks thing ah. There'll oh, be yeah. papal envoys Into Jones's Road <laughs> In Crow Park They have a negotiation <laughs> To get the Pope As five nights <laughs> <laughs> Five nights in Crow Over the Pope That's it There'll be a baby boom in Ireland. Little Franos running around <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> Franos, that's love hate, not the Pope. Pope Frano. <laughs> Tell you, that's it. Class, Ronan, Ronan, thanks for joining us. It was really a pleasure. appreciate you coming in, man. That was good. I enjoyed that more than I might have thought I would have. <laughs> um, and thanks for the yeah for the communist propaganda. It'll be <laughs> great to read. Bring that everywhere with me you know. <laughs> <laughs> on the bus. Here, do you want one? <laughs> on my soul yeah. boxing down. Yeah. <laughs> You're uh, at Rowan Burton Shaw on the Twitter for people who want to follow you if they're not already. Um, Get on that. You do tweet an awful lot of interesting stuff, so do do hit the follow button on Twitter. Graham is at American Mania. I'm at Dan Joe Murray. The podcast is at WTS Pod, or if you go onto Facebook, facebook.com forward slash WTS Pod Ireland. Just search WTS Pod on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean. Podcast Republic, anywhere and everywhere there's a podcast. Download all our pre all seventy four previous episodes. Competition winner. Get into it. Um did he enter correctly? He did enter correctly. Love Liked it. both the page, shared. shared and commented. Love it. So he did enter correctly. Um 
but yeah don't forget to download all the previous episodes if you haven't checked them out do and uh, don't forget to give us an L rate review subscribe thingy on iTunes as well that's the important bit competition winner <laughs> huge reaction Ma- yeah actually it was in fairness um, fair play to everybody who did enter um, and commiserations to the many many millions of you who did not win we had mothers say oh my son would love this for Christmas yeah we had people saying oh this is making me send photos of kids with wrestling belts and, yeah. and if you've listened to this podcast you know that I hate children so they were never going to win <laughs> <laughs> If you wanted to win this, you should have posted a photo of your dog dressed as John Cena. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Preferably a husky or a Labrador. You know what I mean? That, I would have been gunning. I would have like just been the yeah, I'm automatically wins. thinking of the John Cena prank phone call. Oh, I love that phone call, man. Um, now, genuinely, though, lads, uh, thanks to everybody who shared and th- to everybody who entered. Um, we do hope to do more competitions um, with different prizes. We can't guarantee WWE merchandise for all the prizes. A uh, huge thanks again to Nikki Cruz, absolute gent, for, for providing this prize. Um, if ever you need a bit of framing done, check me out. But anyway, the winner, Simon Marr. So congratulations, Simon. Uh, we'll be in touch on the Facebook and we'll organise delivery, etc, etc, etc. Until next week. That's it, Graham. Here is. Full heart. Can't lose. Yeah, good man. Thanks, Rowan. Cheers, guys.